just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, as Boris Johnson is hauled back into Parliament, we ask, is Brexit ever going to happen? Plus, we take a look at how relations have fared between Saudi and America since the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And finally, we take a look at the angry world of knitting. First up, has the establishment foiled Brexit again? That's what Rod Liddell argues in this week's cover piece. With the Supreme Court ruling, Boris Johnson has been dealt a humiliating blow and MPs can now do their best to tie his hands further. Rod despairs that we'll never leave the EU, but is it fair to think of this as a grand conspiracy to prevent Brexit? Rod joins me down the line, and with me in the studio is Anand Menon, director of the think tank UK in a Changing Europe. Rod, the prophecy in your recent book appears to be coming true. You said that Brexit would never happen back in 2016, and your book continues this argument. Did you know that you'd always be right on this? Uh, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece to write. I have always been right about everything. <laughs> uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing it. It slightly mitigated my disappointment that we won't be getting Brexit. But uh, no, I, I, I don't quite see how the leavers, and there are still many in this category, believed from the beginning of this year that Brexit was remotely possible because there's been, without question, a concerted attempt to stifle it. And I, I, they're, they're still harbouring these delusions even now. Even last week, they were harbouring these delusions. And Ernst, do you think that's right, that there's been a concerted effort to stifle well, Brexit? there obviously has been a concerted effort to stifle Brexit. I'm not sure it's as far-reaching or as pernicious as Rod's piece argues. But the other thing I would say is, actually... Brexiters have been amongst those who have stymied Brexit. If you look at what's happened in Parliament, the failure of Brexiters to get their act together was as responsible for the mess we're in as anything else. I partly agree with that, not entirely. I mean, I think it was a lamentable performance by Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and the Leave campaign within the Conservative Party when they had, much to their apparent horror, won the referendum back in 2016. <laughs> they were unprepared, didn't know what to do, had no plan and were useless. I accept that. And then secondly, I think, again, there is a narrow point that the ERGers at the beginning of the year were reluctant to support something which is a bit like Brexit, but isn't Brexit really. Uh, I could see their problems in signing up to the deal, but I urged at the time that it was the best deal we could possibly, possibly get, given the state of Parliament being unrepresentative of the people of the United Kingdom. Well, do you think there's any way that Brexit can now happen, or do you think we've just reached a point where it's impossible? I think there will always be these recourses by a hardcore of Remainers, by which, incidentally, I do not mean anywhere near a majority of Remainers. Almost everyone I know who voted Remain now wants us to leave. You know, They want us to leave because that was a democratic decision, and also they're sick of it. They disagreed with the democratic decision, but they accepted that, that we should leave. The only way I can see us leaving now, and I think it's very much a long shot, is if somehow there's an election in November, 
Boris Johnson manages to do a deal with uh, the Brexit party, which does not involve him losing too many seats. And between them, they form a sort of government. But I think that is so far down the line, so unlikely, that I think it's almost beyond consideration. You don't think the Conservatives can win a majority without a pact? No, or even become not, the largest not, party? Not, not really. I, I just don't think Boris plays very well outside the southeast of England. You know, most of the time I live up in the northeast of England, and the Conservative Party generally is loathed. But Boris Johnson and, and you know, Rees Mogg are loathed even more as being emblematic of that of that Conservative Party uh, run by, as they would put it, toffs and people who don't really give a damn about the North. I think it's very difficult to see whether... Uh, I mean, you, you may think differently, but psychologically, it's very difficult to see where the Tories pick up votes. I think they will lose horribly in London, and they will also lose seats in, in the southwest, possibly to the Lib Dems. I think, at best... Boris may pick up some seats in the Midlands, East Midlands particularly, and maybe into Essex. But I think they'll be offset by horrible losses elsewhere without a pact. Even with a pact, I'm not convinced, you know, because I'm not as convinced as Nigel Farage that his party has the power to win as many seats as he thinks it does. I think... What Theresa May did and Boris Johnson's in danger of doing is underestimating the levels of loathing there are for the Conservative brand. Yes, uh, yes, that's right. And whether or not people who are even dyed-in-the-wool staunch leavers would be willing to vote Conservative to further that cause, I think is a matter for doubt. They might vote for the I... Brexit party as a proxy, but that doesn't necessarily help Boris Johnson. No, indeed, I think that's exactly right. I, I did a before the twenty seventeen election, which I was—I'm not often right. I've been right twice, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I—but I got the twenty seventeen election right by saying that I don't think Corbyn's as unpopular outside Westminster as you guys think, meaning the the, the, the mainstream media, and also that this fallacy that the UKIP votes, which were now pointless would transfer en masse to the Conservative Party. I did a bit of a study on it, and they did transfer en masse to the Conservative Party uh, in the southeast, where the Conservative Party didn't need them because they already had those seats. But up in Hartlepool, which was the constituency I had a good look at, they transferred to almost anyone but the Conservative Party, yeah. even, paradoxically, you might think, to the Lib Dems. Uh, as a protest vote. So I think that's absolutely right as the analysis of what might happen. Is the spectator the mainstream media, just out of interest? <laughs> hey, Rod, what do you think? <laughs> we, we try to be sometimes. <laughs> straddle both. <laughs> <laughs> and Anna, what do you make of Rod's point that he makes, that the notion that our judiciary are above the political forward is patently absurd? I mean, do you think that's true? There is always a very blurred line between the law and politics in any system. But I do think, I mean... You know, I'd be interested to know what Rod makes of the court the court that upheld the government's decision, the senior court in England before the Supreme Court. Yeah. Are we assuming they're all leavers? <laughs> no, I'm not assuming they're all leavers. No, it's not quite as simple as that. Though it is, I'm told, that something like 82% of the judiciary are remainers. I tell you what strikes me. What strikes me is that all these lefties going on about the heroism of Lady Hale and the Supreme Court of Justice and, and castigating anyone who might, who might doubt that they are politically pristine when for 40 years, quite rightly, they have argued that the courts 
when push comes to shove, tend to support the ruling elite. The difference is, I think, that the ruling elite has changed over the last 30 to 40 years. It's now a kind of soft liberal ruling elite. And I, I think it's very, very hard. I mean, A, firstly, I don't agree with Supreme Courts. I don't think we should have one. B, I think it was... Whilst I think it was wrong of Boris to have prorogued Parliament for various reasons, I also think it was wrong of the Supreme Court to get involved in what was a political matter. I think the original court got it right, probably. But to think of, that these people are just above the fray, of course they never are, and nor can they be, and nor should one expect them to be. But to make that argument plausibly, you've got to point to something in the judgment that clearly isn't right. And that's the one thing I've seen missing. I mean, I've heard a lot of people who don't like the decision saying, well, this must be biased. Yeah. But actually, it's a very, very narrow judgment in some ways, isn't it? it I mean, it, it, is, does, yeah. it, it doesn't yeah. do all the things that people say it does. It doesn't call the prime minister a liar. In fact, all it basically says is, why didn't you give us some reasons and you might have had grounds for doing what you did? Yeah, I don't think there's the slightest doubt that the government lawyers did not perhaps perform as well as they might have done. I think that's the least we can say. But then again, there was also the case that, you know, it seemed to me as someone who was a lever, it was palpably wrong and deceitful of Boris Johnson to tell the country that the proroguing of Parliament was nothing to do with Brexit. It was a lie. And it was a downright lie, and we all knew it was a lie, and any leavers who say they didn't think it was a lie are themselves kidding themselves. Well, do you think Boris has, you know, everyone was obviously saying Boris is playing such a clever game. I mean, do you think, do you think he hasn't actually played such a clever game? I think his first two weeks were pretty good with his scorched earth policy. I also see the problem he was in, given that Parliament, which is supposed to represent the people, is somewhere in the region of between five and six to one, opposed to leaving the EU, if you count people who are opposed to leaving the EU when we had the referendum, which is not what the BBC does, by the way, when it puts people on air. So it was impossible, and everything which has been tried to get Brexit through has failed. So I could see why he would want to do that. But I think there were two fatal mistakes. I mean, one of them, I think, proroguing Parliament didn't give him very much, frankly, uh, and cost him a lot. The second thing was also alienating other members of the Conservative Party. Uh, I think the whip could reasonably have been removed from those 20 rebels, but then the sort of reflexive spite to kick them out of their constituencies just lost him an awful lot of support, I suspect, amongst wavering Tories around the country. And I'd add that proroguing and losing in court is a particularly bad look, because for all the, all the chat you hear about Boris Johnson's drive to have a populist election, if you look at the Ipsos, that, that trust index they do, 86% yeah. of people trust judges. So I'm not sure that's the right target to have picked as part of a populist campaign <laughs> ahead of an election. Yeah, they do trust judges. I think we're going to have to disabuse them of that notion. And I suspect it's gone down a little bit in the last <laughs> week or so. Can I just add that 83% uh, I've never trust academics judges. as well? I didn't, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't trust them when Jeremy Thorpe was acquitted. <laughs> I didn't trust them when the Herald of Free Enterprise people were acquitted. And I don't trust them now. You know, I, I mean, I trust them up to a point. But it always seems to me that when push comes to shove, it tends to be the establishment that they stick up for. And we do definitely have a different establishment now than we did 40 years ago. Isn't that just uh, partly a, a matter of perspective, though? Because my sense, my gut coming into this was the government's going to win because, let's face it, Tory governments always bloody win with the courts. I mean, we, 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 we you know, that, that's my yeah, own well, personal no, bunch no, of prejudices. You're right. But you're right. Or at least you would have been right 20 years ago. 
But I think things have changed. The establishment's changed. The judiciary is far more liberal than it ever was. You know, and these were Blair appointments, remember, Lady Hale particularly. These, these were liberal human rights lawyers who are now sitting. It's no longer Justice Cocklecarrot telling rape victims that they asked for it. You know, it's a very different judiciary these Judge days. Pickles. And uh, the same is true to a certain extent. I mean, the BBC used to be but, but Rod, turn this on its anyway, head. Turn, on, turn this on its head, and I, I just wonder whether, in six months' time, in what you might consider a doomsday scenario, you might be quite pleased with the Supreme Court if Jeremy Corbyn's in Number Ten Downing Street, planning a prorogation for his own uh, less than straightforward reasons. You might actually say, "Thank God for the Supreme Court." Well, no, I don't think I would. You see. There are areas where I feel a degree of sympathy for Corbyn, and one of them is his natural inclination to get the hell out of the EU, because he knows damn well that his tax proposals and probably other things beside that wouldn't survive EU scrutiny. And I think it should be, you know, if we are stupid enough to elect this man as a prime minister, he has the right to push through his agenda without fear or favour from either the European Union, the European Courts of Justice, or indeed our cobbled together Supreme Court. Uh, but within the constraints all, of the law? Within the constraints of the law, yes. But then you get into difficult issues. There is the division between the law and politics. I think that the Supreme Court overstepped it this time, and it, it makes me suspect that they will overstep it again in the future. So it's, it's kind of the opposite of, of what you were suggesting, I feel. Obviously, one would take delight at Jeremy Corbyn being discombobulated, but I, I still don't think that morally that is the right thing to do. I think, you know, the politicians decide policy. And Rod, just finally, to ask one more thing of you, do you think there's any chance that we'll be living on the 31st of October? None whatsoever. Absolute nil. Zero. <laughs> That's my book. My book My book was right. <laughs> so, so I have the pleasure of being able to be upset and happy at the same time. <laughs> Thank you, Rod and Anand. Hello, I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls. And you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider. And why not leave us a review if you like it? It's almost a year since the death of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And it's been a good time to reflect on the West relationship with Saudi Arabia. In this week's issue, John R. Bradley writes that the US is cooling on the alliance. But where should Britain stand on this issue? Saudi Arabia is, after all, one of our most stalwart allies in a volatile Middle East, and that's not to mention the strategic importance of their oil supply. But is it time to wean ourselves off this alliance? I'm joined by the former British ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Sir John Jenkins, together with Professor Madawi al-Rashid from the LSE. John, next week marks the anniversary of the death of Jamal Khashoggi. How are relations between the US and Saudi Arabia third in that time? You know, first of all, what happened to Jamal was uh, was disgusting. It really was. But the interesting thing is that it hasn't actually, apart from you know, the Washington Post, that's not been the fulcrum on which the relations with the United States have turned. And I think if you look at what Trump does, what Trump has said, and what the United States is doing or is not doing in the region... This is something that is not just about Trump. This is something that you could see emerging under Obama and in a way under, with, with, with Bush as well. And I think it's, 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 it's a long-term trend. What we're seeing is a structural shift. And the Jamal thing was, in policy terms, was a blip. And what do you think is driving that shift? 
Uh, I think there's lots of things. I think changes in the energy market uh, are driving it. I think U.S. shale production uh, is driving it. I think longer-term global economic shifts. It's probable that we've reached peak car. So 2018 was probably the peak year for car sales. They're going down. Electrical cars, electrical cars are coming up. Green energy is coming up and so forth. There are two things. One is that the, I think the Gulf in general is economically far less important to the United States uh, than it historically was. Secondly, I think there was there has long been a question mark in the United States about how much they themselves should be responsible for ensuring the so-called security of, of, of energy supplies. Everything we've seen over the last 40 years, 40, 50 years in the Gulf tells us that, that oil does keep flowing, even at bad times. And with, with global energy prices still in the mid-60s, I think people feel more comfortable. There's also the issue of China, of course, and, and where how America positions itself for the emerging uh, new power competition, which is not going to happen in the Middle East. Madawi, speaking of oil, how severe was the attack on the Saudi oil fields? I think the Saudis were shocked that their main oil fields, Abqiq at Khurais, were attacked. And there was a disruption of the flow of oil. And already there is talk about queues at petrol station immediately after the attack. But it's important to understand that uh, Saudi Arabia amplifies this attack, whatever it is, for specific reason. Basically, given the outlook of the American foreign policy under Trump, specifically, but also it dates back to the Obama administration, we see that the Saudis have been actually very, very nervous because they don't think that they can rely on the U.S. to Uh, fight their war as it did in 1990 when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. But today the situation is different. Trump is very transnational in his foreign policy. And the Middle East, although there is a lot of talk about peace process with Israel, about getting Saudi Arabia, the UAE and other uh, important countries to be involved, nothing has been achieved so far. There is no sign that there is a reaction to that attack. And Saudi Arabia has just got to accept the fact now that it had spent a lot of money, millions of dollars on armament, heavy armament, jet fighters that it hasn't used against Iran. It has used, unfortunately, against Yemen without any clear success or victory. So the situation in Washington, if you look at Saudi Arabia, there is a kind of division. The armament is still going on and Trump is very keen to sign more deals like the British government here uh, to get Saudi money. But in return, I don't think Ms. Uh, Tr- Trump is willing to sacrifice uh, sacrifice American soldiers for the sake of Saudi Arabia. And as oil is becoming less and less important for the U.S. itself, um, he's not going to jump on the opportunity to flex his muscles on behalf of the Saudis. And if the Saudis don't think they can rely on America, I mean, who do they think they can rely on these days? They wave the flag of increasing their ties and connections with Russia and China. And China specifically had already signed several agreements, but they're all economic in, in, in general, with some kind of technology, especially surveillance technology is bought from China at the moment. And the uh, relationship is actually getting stronger and stronger. Saudi students are sent to uh, China to study. Uh, some of them had already mastered the language. 
language, but there is always a cultural barrier. China is a newcomer, and Saudi Arabia, as everybody knows, had been actually tied to Britain first, and then the United States after the Second World War. And it's very difficult for the Saudis to shift, especially their military capabilities, to a Chinese system. They've been linked to the West and Western armament. And therefore, for their own security, they are still very dependent on something that is not forthcoming. And John, how have relations fared between Britain and Saudi over the past year? We've got obviously a new prime minister. Any question of Britain's relations with anybody against the the background of Brexit? I mean, I think Brexit has sort of sucked all the political air out of the room. So I think if you look at what Theresa May uh, and then Boris Johnson have said and done about Saudi Arabia, I think it's been an attempt to maintain some sort of continuity with what went before. What we're seeing is one example of the playing out of a shift global power and the decay of an international order, which by and large established the, 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 the boundaries within which states conducted their bilateral relations. And this was all dependent on the convening power of the United States, whether in the, in the, in, in, in the Security Council or in other ad hoc forums uh, or, or other international organisations. This isn't simply a bilateral issue about us and, and Saudi Arabia. This is more about about how we collectively deal with this shift. And and one of the problems we have at the moment is that there is very little collectivity about any of this sort of decision-making, even the discussion of it. The European Union talks about doing various things with Iran. It's it's delusional, quite honestly, because there's no real power to, to execute or deliver. And in any case, there are different views within the European Union. And I think that's, in the end, the challenge for the British government, as it is for the French government, the German government, and indeed the American government. This, in this country, we will only really be able to come to terms with that once we're through this whole Brexit thing, whichever way it turns out. And that's, you know, that's still a ways off. <laughs> and just finally, Madari, and what, with regards to the relationship between Saudi and America, what, and what does that change in terms of the relations with Iran? Well, I mean, under the uh, Trump administration, there seems to be a reversal of the kind of drive to rehabilitate Iran and have access to Iran. As the joint nuclear agreement was signed by the US and other European countries. But under Trump, there is this confrontational rhetoric. But actually, he seemed to practice sort of um, Twitter diplomacy with all the people he is engaged with, even with Saudi Arabia. One day, he tells them that they have to pay for the American services that they render to the Saudi regime. Another day, he flags a sign showing how much arms they had bought. Sometimes he says, we will protect you, but you have to pay a lot of money. And then with Iran, he he maintains that kind of confrontational rhetoric, but he also issues an invitation and wants to have talks with Rouhani, the American president, in D.C. So it's very difficult to know. I think it's just noise because the project of Trump is actually not to get involved in the Middle East, which is no longer the place to execute foreign policy for the Americans. As long as the relationship with Israel is maintained and the security of Israel is maintained, the American administration is willing to sort of dump its allies in the region. They are only important is to, to, to maintain that kind of security for Israel. And as for the Europeans or the British government, specifically, I think they try to find a window of opportunity when the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the US gets hard, as it did under Obama, then they find that they can be a a source acceptable to the Saudis for 
uh, arming the Saudis even more than what Britain does for them. And I haven't seen a change. In fact, what I have heard is that now with Brexit, with the unknown that we are in at the moment, Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf become more important as trade partners, meaning we have to sell them more arms that they have been using in destroying Yemen and also playing a very, very uh, negative role in the Arab uprising after 2011, destabilizing the region even more and more, and without giving a chance to any other force or movement that seeks democracy to establish itself and test itself. Thank you, John and Madawi. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly Books podcast, at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. And finally, you might not have known this, but there's a lot of drama going on in the world of knitting. In this week's issue, Isabel Hardman, who herself knits, writes about the diversity wars raging in the community. Discussions on race and politics have taken over and an online mob is currently hunting down anyone with the wrong sorts of opinions. Isabel joins me now to talk us through what's happened, together with the author, Bonnie Greer. Isabel, your piece this week looks at the witch hunt against the knitter Nathan Taylor, who goes by the name of Sockmetician. Can you explain to listeners what exactly has happened? Yes, the Sockmetician. So he's quite well known in, in the knitting world and about a year ago there was a big debate that was starting in the knitting world about ethnic minority representation that there was a a designer called Jeanette Sloan who pointed out that she was one of the few well-known black knitters and asked people to think about how many knitwear designers they actually knew or had heard of who were from black or ethnic minorities and so this started a really important debate about diversity in knitting which as far as I'm aware is quite a white world but what then happened was that people started trying to shame other knitters who weren't sufficiently committed to diversity in knitting and the sockmetician is is one of those who who ended up on the receiving end of, of this so he was very switched on to the diversity agenda to the extent that he set up a hashtag which was hashtag diverse knitty and apparently this was a beautiful hashtag that lots of people were sharing their their backgrounds on but it then turned sour with people turning on one another for their again their lack of commitment to to ensuring diversity in knitting and so in the summer, he posted a poem about diverse nitty, which I will spare listeners from having to hear. But he basically asked people to use the hashtag to be kind to each other and to spread positivity. And the response to this was people accusing him of being a white supremacist, of committing violence against black and indigenous people of colour, BIPOC for short. And on and on it went to... The point that he then turned off comments on this post. I think there was something like 3,000 comments on this post. And then they moved on to another post where he'd posted a picture of, of a shawl that he'd knitted. And he turned off comments on that post as well. And th- the anger got so much that he basically had a, a mental breakdown and was admitted to hospital and was diagnosed with with a sort of traumatic, a mental trauma. And people then said this was him gaslighting them using his mental health. 
He then turned up at a, a yarn festival called Yarningham a few days later, where he was teaching some of his double knit- knitting patterns and was confronted by a woman <coughs> who was angry about this poem that he'd posted. And he asked her to, to leave him alone because he said his mental health was still very fragile. She didn't. He alleges that he was then pushed by one of the festival organisers and eventually gently escorted out of the room. She recorded a video saying that there had been an altercation in which she knew he was going to hit him. And this was then translated on Instagram in particular into a violent assault by Taylor against this woman. To the extent that, and I know this is a very convoluted story, but I think it is important to to tell it in full... People started boycotting him. His knitting patterns were dropped from books that were about to be published. There were a couple of sort of knitting campaigners who went around messaging everyone in the knitting world who was following him on Instagram, asking him why they were still following him and whether they were going to publish a statement condemning him on their feeds. And people were very hurriedly then saying, I'm sorry, I haven't said anything about sockmetician but but you know I condemn his racism and his white supremacy and the guy's business has has dropped by seventy five percent. He's basically had to take time out and is now working out how to to relaunch well his livelihood, I guess. And the strange thing is is that all of it stems from him writing a poem asking people to be a bit nicer to each other. Bonnie, what do you make of this story? I mean, do, do you think the the black and indigenous people of color who accused him of tone policing had a point? Well, I'll give you an analogy of where we are now. I'm American. I'm African-American. Now, I can't go into an African-Caribbean community, even though we're the same color and we're the same descent. I can't and shouldn't go in and tell them, let's all get together and let's, you know what I'm saying? It's not where people are anymore. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. You have to know where people are, especially when we're talking about online communities where you can be anonymous, you don't have to actually face anyone. And then it it kind of wraps up into the village square syndrome where, you know, one word becomes something else. It becomes something else and it spirals out of control. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for him. I'm sorry that he's subjected to this. And I, I also have to say, Listening to this story, I've heard of NFL players who knit between games, actors knit. I know lots of black people and ethnic minority people who knit, so I'm not quite sure where it was the idea that knitting isn't diverse. I mean, that's that's interesting to me. I mean, that's an interesting point that Bonnie makes, Isabel, about him crossing a line. I mean, by all accounts, Nathan Taylor seems quite a woke character. As you say in the piece... He's very vocal about disliking Trump and Brexit. He's written about being HIV positive. I mean, do you think it's becoming increasingly hard to kind of stay constantly on the right side of all of these arguments? Yeah, I mean, when I spoke to him, he said he, d- he didn't want to be described as, as woke because uh, he felt that that was no, him trying sure. to use uh, yeah. so, some, someone else's uh, dialect. So he felt very uncomfortable with, with even using that, that word. But I mean, he is what I suppose, you know, what we might describe as woke or right on. or He is someone who is trying to be part of the change and I think this is the interesting shift that we've seen recently is it's not people who are sort of saying oh there's no racism or you know I'm one of those people who just doesn't see colour or anything sort of tedious like that these are people who are aware I guess of their white privilege and who want to help and improve the diversity in the knitting world but because they don't say precisely 
the right thing that one person on Instagram thinks they should, then suddenly they become racist. So it's not that they've actually said anything that in itself is intrinsically racist. It's the fact that they haven't posted, for instance, I I use the example of another knitting designer in, in the piece called Kate Davies, who wasn't posting graphics saying the knitting community is racist or indeed turning on other knitters and publicly shaming them because she didn't think that was helpful. Now, at the same time, she was actually putting out a call for BIPOC knitters to join in with a book that she was doing of knitting patterns and she was criticised for that for for another reason as too so really everyone who wants to do good ends up being caught in a net that they themselves have, have been I suppose weaving. I've found being online a lot is that a lot of these some of these things are started by very small cadres and individuals who decide that they, you know, have a beef or whatever, and they're going to post that or hashtag that beef, and then people flock to it. It's 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 a kind of a herd thing, and you know, if you're online, if you're working online, that's something that we all have to understand and we all have to know. There is certain language if you are not in that community that you should be aware of. It doesn't make you evil because you don't know but you should be aware of. For instance, I am really, really interested in what's called neural diversity. Now, we used to call this other things, and now people in these communities want to be called neural neural diverse. I, I love that. I respect that, and that is what I will use. I will not go into a situation, and even with the best of intentions, even with a pure heart, lecture someone who is a member of that community and say, look, we shouldn't actually be like this. We shouldn't be that way because I'm not of that community. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, again, we're not talking about right and wrong. It's a matter of etiquette and it's a matter of understanding and not necessarily sort of going along with it, but understanding how can people are putting themselves in communities and they're reclaiming their identity. And this guy, and I'm again, I'm very sorry that he's been subjected to what sounds like bullying and harassment, but I would say to him that, you know, to step back a little bit and really look and, res- and respect this community's self-definition, continue to do his work, but I, and I, I don't want to sound Pollyanna about it, but this is the age that we're in, and we, we need to respect that people now are self-defining, they're reclaiming, and it's a very important moment. Isabel, I suppose listeners might be quite surprised to hear that knitting has become so political. Why do you think hobbies like knitting, which perhaps traditionally thought of as sort of refuge from this sort of political behaviour have suddenly become so heated. Well this is another source of a row that some knitters have been complaining about how political knitting has become and saying this is my refuge, this is where I come to relax and then they've got into trouble because apparently you can't stick to your knitting because it, it is inherently political. So I mean I think to a certain extent creative areas do tend to have a, if not a, a greater representation of left-wing 
views. It, they do tend to, people with left-wing views tend to get a, a slightly more sympathetic hearing, I think. I mean, the, the, the main knitting site, Ravelry, for instance, has recently announced a ban on Trump support, which I, I was slightly baffled by because I sort of thought, well, I mean, I go on Ravelry to get like patterns for socks. People do on these forums talk about Donald Trump and apparently there were some pro-Trump knitting patterns. So I think that the thing that I'm sort of particularly anxious about is that people who are trying to to do the right thing and as, who have basically just said can we be a bit nicer to each other and I'd be really interested in what Bonnie thinks about this is 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 tone policing in itself a bad thing now this is a very nuanced thing but there are a lot of people out there now who are defining themselves against other things and we have to keep our antenna up and understand that. I mean, knitting is one of those situations where you can talk to people. I mean, that's what people do. They work and they, they knit and they talk. And I would say to the young guy, the guy who decided he really wanted to make his statement, look at his privilege. It's very important that he do that. And it doesn't mean that he's a bad person or he's got nothing to contribute. But look at the place that he's saying it from, look at his privilege, and maybe he might say, hey, that's not for me to say, and I'm stepping out, but I want to keep knitting, and I want to be with the people who want to knit with me. Thank you, Isabel and Bonnie. And that's it for this week. If you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've discussed, as well as an interview with Michael Gove, and more from Douglas Murray, Mark Mason, and Comrade Black. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. (laughs) 